If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. That's going to be on page 779 if you want to use one of the Bibles we've provided. We are about to see our first action in this, just our second week in a new series called 30 Acts. There are numerous lenses through which one can read this biblical account of the early church. So I picked up some sermon titles this week. And here are some sermon titles I found for the book of Acts. You have Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Master Plan of Discipleship. Multiply, which is all about evangelism in Acts. Church on the Move, which is all about the church responding to God's movement. And this approximates most closely with the lens through which we're going to look at Acts. Which means a couple things. Number one, as we go through the book of Acts, we might skip one of your favorite stories or accounts in Acts. It's unavoidable. Please email me later about that, okay? But uh, we might skip one of them. And secondly, it means that occasionally when we look at the book of Acts, we're going to take the big picture view, the 10,000-foot view. We might not get into every minute detail about every character and every symbolism. We want to get a big picture view of how people respond to God's work. The apostles, joined quickly by 120 others, are the first responders to God's work, to the gospel. Jesus did everything that the Father set before him. He lived a perfect life. He said only perfect words. He died in our place. Then he defeated death by rising from it. And finally, he ascended into heaven to show his lordship over all. What we're going to do is spend now till early December looking at 30 responses of the early church to this completed work of Jesus. To all this work that he did that the New Testament calls the gospel. And we're going to look at a pair of of responses every Sunday, a pair of active responses every Sunday. So this morning, for instance, we're going to follow that outline very simply. We'll read the church's first response in Acts 2, verses 1 through 11, which is an openness to experience God the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to follow it up with the church's second response in verses 12 through 41, which is explaining that experience. So if you've ever experienced something from God, something deep, something profound, and you've struggled with words to explain what God did in your life, well, this message I pray is for you this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, like a crowd came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying to one another, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Certain people, maybe even most, are predisposed to anything unusual 
anything extraordinary that happens in their life as being from God. Case in point, American Christians who see Jesus miraculously appear in their food. In their food. So, for example, uh, Rosalie Lawson claims to have seen Jesus on a sour cream and onion potato chip. There it is. And look at the resemblance. There's a couple who saw Jesus take the shape of a Cheeto. True story. You, You have also... A Florida pastor who saw Christ crucified while slicing potatoes for his potato salad. And indeed, it looks somewhat similar, but when they all look the same, you might want to wonder if that's just the shape of the potato. Uh, Donna Lee, who sold her Jesus pierogi for over $1,700 on eBay. And of course, the resemblance is striking. And uh, she profited greatly. This phenomenon got so big a few years back that, this is true, a a research team from the University of Toronto, thankfully it was objective outside of America, University of Toronto conducted a study, concluded just last year, and they published this report of their findings that was an award-winning report. Here's, Here's the name of the report, which appeared in an actual medical journal. Seeing Jesus in Toast, Neural and Behavioral Correlates of Face Pareidolia. It's a real condition, pareidolia. According to Carl Sagan, I don't know how he got quoted for this, but he said people tend to see familiar faces where none exist, which is what pareidolia is. When people see familiar faces where none, in fact, exist. Because of, quote, an evolutionary need to discern facial expression. Our ancestors needed to identify friend or foe in order to survive. They wanted to survive. You have to identify facial expression. That leads to people seeing Apparently, Jesus in food. Now, why should we think anything differently about what we've just read? There's probably, some might think, a scientific explanation for why people were just hearing things in their own language. Each person, each people group. Maybe it was what psychologists would call wish fulfillment. There were devout people there, after all, right? And they're living in an auditory culture. Maybe they just wanted to hear the Sunday school lessons they grew up with. Wanted to hear the great, mighty works of God, as it says here, that were so familiar to them. Maybe that's an explanation. Because it sounds kind of kooky. Or maybe this author, Luke is, is just, Luke, is just spewing out the same kind of stuff we read, same kind of exaggerated information we read on message boards or over a, you know, a drink at a friend's house when people are prone to exaggerate. But I would argue, guys, that Luke's is a very trustworthy account. Around the turn of the 20th century, a very respected but agnostic scholar named Sir William Ramsey wanted to develop a a historic and geographic study of first century Asia Minor. And if that sounds like gobbledygook to you, what that basically means, he wanted to take the area of Acts and, and, and talk about what it was like in the first century. The problem was, when it comes to the Bible, he was told his whole life in schooling that the New Testament is practically worthless for getting historical information. People said, first of all, Acts was written sometime in the second century, we think, and, and, and the, the, the details in it are unreliable. However, as he began to investigate, he, he came upon evidence, historical, also uh, archaeological discoveries that were confirmed only, only in the book of Acts. Nowhere else. And he went on to say this, I set out with a mind unfavorable to Acts, but concluded Luke's history 
is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. Here's a guy who started to finally, okay, I'll look at this biblical account, but I'm going to recognize that it's not true. I'm starting from a position that it's not true. And the more he read, the more was confirmed in archaeological evidence. In fact, it was this historical reliability of Acts that ignited Ramsey's journey to trust Jesus. That's right. From seeing how detailed and accurate Luke was, he eventually became a Christian. Awesome, right? When, so when Luke says that this new Greek and possibly also a little Aramaic-speaking church starts to declare literally in verse 11, the mega works of God. That's what that means, word, the mega works of God, which would have been things like the call of Abraham, delivering God's people from Egypt, the clearing of the promised land so God's people could live in it and inhabit it. These kinds of works in languages that they never learned and perhaps never heard, but now we're speaking fluently. It may sound like mythical and maybe religious propaganda, but when an agnostic who has no motive in seeing Acts as reliable comes along and says, if I'm honest, there is no more accurate scholar, there's no more accurate account of the first century than Acts, it's worth paying attention to at the very least. And by proxy, it's worth seeing that we might want to experience the power of God, which we see on display here in Acts 2. Because if he's not lying about all the details and all the places and all the people, he's probably not lying about what God did. Luke's is a unique account. First of all, it's a reliable account. It's a historical account, but it's also a unique account. It happened one time. A lot of people wonder. They've experienced maybe God in profound ways, and they wonder, can the Pentecost happen again? Will something like this happen now where, where fire appears on each individual and people will begin to speak in languages and thousands will come to know Christ and will this kind of Pentecost happen again? And the answer is very simply no. But that's very good news. I'll explain why. Let me explain what Pentecost is first. Pentecost, as we understand it as Christians, is the Holy Spirit's introduction of a new age in which God would be with believers forever because of what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit inaugurates a new age. We call it a new covenant. This new time where God would be with people who believed in Jesus forever because of what Jesus did. It's awesome. What a tremendous gift. It's not based on what you do or how much effort you put in to life. It's not based on how religious you are or how much you did for your church that year. Just based on the fact that Jesus worked for you and on your behalf. The Pentecost initiates spiritual birth. It makes it possible. In verse 2, we read about this sound like a mighty rushing wind, which echoes Jesus' words in John 3, which we recently took a look at, about people who are born of the Spirit. Back in John chapter 3, we read, the wind blows where it wishes, Jesus said. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We see this become possible through Pentecost. The Pentecost makes possible reconciliation. This act in history is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Now, you may or may not remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Sunday school classes from long ago. Maybe you do. I don't know. I'll explain a little bit about it. These various nations come together early in our history to make a name for themselves, quote-unquote. This is in Genesis chapter 11. To make a name for ourselves, building a tower which they aim to be like God. Now, God frustrates their efforts by confusing their speech. You can imagine everybody working together. Hey, Jim, I need a hammer. Yeah, I need a chainsaw. None of these were around at the time. But you get the point. But when God confuses their language, they can't work on this tower any longer. 
So they all go their separate ways, each with their own language. Here, the church gathers in one place to humbly make a name for Jesus. As we saw last week, all gathered together, all looking to Jesus, all praying, all worshiping, all looking to the Bible, not making a name for themselves, as Genesis 11, to make a name for Jesus. So out of many languages, the Holy Spirit brings a unified message. He reverses the effects of Babel. Why is that so important? What it means is, through the Holy Spirit, people of different cultures, different languages, different ethnicities, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds can come together because of the Holy Spirit can be unified through Jesus because of the power that's there to be the glue between us. That's awesome. The Pentecost also empowers witness. In fact, Pentecost was originally a Jewish festival celebrating the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of a wheat harvest. So you've got double harvest going on, right? Everybody loves that. More food, right? End of one harvest, let's start another. We know we're going to get more food. Everyone's happy because we love food. But more importantly, you remember that Jesus once said, The harvest is plentiful, going on to call himself the Lord of the harvest. Well, the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of Peter, which we're going to see in a moment, to reap 3,000 souls in God's first harvest. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 41. In other words, the literal harvest of Pentecost, the celebration of the literal harvest leads to a spiritual harvest. Awesome. Here's the rub. We can no more experience Pentecost a second time, then we can another crucifixion, another resurrection, another ascension. We don't repeat those events, neither will we repeat Pentecost, but that is good news because we are all living in a Pentecost era in which the Holy Spirit continues to flow as the promised gift of Jesus into our lives to let you know that God is with you, He loves you, to give you gifts, to empower you for service. In this sense, every Christian is Pentecostal. Because the Holy Spirit continues to conceive new birth, bring people from every background together through Jesus, and empower obedient witness to talk about who Jesus is when we talk with non-Christians. Now, some of you who know your Bible well may ask, well, wait a minute, Ryan, if it only happened here once in Acts chapter 2, what about these other times the Holy Spirit comes upon new believers in the book of Acts, and they also speak in tongues? Well, come speak with me later for some bonus sermon action. Right, I can give you some bonus material later. Uh, this week especially, I think I found a way to best explain how this fits into God's program, if you're interested. I'll move on, though. One helpful way, if you forget everything else, to think about the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost is to think of it as an earthquake in the middle of a still ocean. So God comes, he's in the form of the Holy, Holy Spirit comes, and he sends this earthquake in the middle of a still ocean because the earth is powerless. It's, it's, it's stillborn, the church is. We've talked about that with new birth. So he sends this earthquake, the epicenter of which sends out ripples that form ongoing waves of the Holy Spirit that we continue to experience today. Waves of refreshing, waves of God's goodness in our lives. Sometimes we get an aftershock from the initial earthquake. Any of you guys ever lived in Southern California? Or any place with earthquakes, raise your hands. Okay. So you know this experience. You get this 7.1 on the Richter scale, maybe somewhere near Northridge. And then later you get a little 3.1, a little 1.8. This is the same thing with how God uses the Holy Spirit. He has already come. He has, the earthquake has happened. 
that every once in a while, the church experiences these seasons of aftershocks. Some people call it revival, where you get heightened sensitivity to sin. Rapid repentance. People are quick to say, God, I'm sorry. Tears are shed. You see the overcoming of idols and addiction, unusual prophetic accuracy, emotional and physical healing. Aftershocks of the Pentecost. I heard this week from a number of sunrisers whose walk with God I deeply respect and who've experienced these aftershocks of Pentecost in their own lives. One woman shared about the consolation she received from the Holy Spirit. And she knew it was the Holy Spirit because Jesus four times calls himself our counselor or our comforter. Her dad died suddenly from a heart attack at age 59. He didn't know it was oncoming, didn't even know he was, had high cholesterol or anything of that nature. But that morning on the kitchen table, he wrote out a scripture verse. It was Romans 8.28. For we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. So even though her family was devastated for the father to die at such a young age, they all knew immediately that in writing that God works all things for good, that the father was reminding them they still have a heavenly father, even though their earthly one was taken from them. Awesome. That's the kind of thing the Holy Spirit does, to orchestrate comfort. Another woman had a urinary tract infection. She couldn't shake off, even after multiple strains of antibiotics. Until someone prayed for her for healing. She's shown no symptoms since then. Awesome. An aftershock of the Pentecost. A gentleman uh, shared with me how after hearing God's call to move, he received almost an immediate buyer for his house, for one of his prized possessions, and an immediate buyer for his small business. Because when God calls you, he provides everything else through his Holy Spirit. Immediately, bam, 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 even though he was going through a recession at the time. A woman was encouraged to listen to God to pray for someone else. She sensed strongly that God gave her a word of knowledge that someone in the room had pain in their left hand. Someone in the smallest room had pain in their left hand. So she stood up and she said, I feel like God is saying this. And and another woman stood up and said, I've been experiencing pain in my left hand. And actually I've been growing increasingly worried about it. And so my friend went and prayed for her. Holy Spirit. A man who'd attended a Promise Keepers event experienced, along with a group of other men, the kind of deep conviction and desire to mend relationships that he said, quote, men don't ever talk about, much less weep over. And yet, the Holy Spirit does that sort of thing. I'll give you one more. I've twice experienced during worship service an almost uncontrollable joy that resulted in laughter. And I don't know if people thought, like, I just was sitting next to a good comedian, or what? But I was just laughing uncontrollably. One, the most recent, in fact, happened during the Citizens and Saints concert, which if you caught a glimpse of me at any time, I was, as my wife said, dancing like a madman during that time. But I, I was just such a joy and such a work of the Spirit in my life. Now, I share all these things because many Christians and are what we, I call practical deists. And I got to say, I at one time was a card-carrying member of this organization, A deist is someone who believes God created the world, he wound it up like a clock, he let it go, and left humanity to deal with the rest. So God pretty much started everything, he gave us life, but then he gives us the life we have just to live on our own. And many Christians live as practical deists. They live like God, rescued them through Jesus, kind of wound us up, got us started, but now we're kind of left to fend for ourselves. That is wrong. (laughs) 
Let me suggest a strategy to defeat practical deism. If you sense this morning that this is you, you know in your life that this is how you live, that you live as if God can't intervene in your history, let me suggest a strategy to defeat practical deism. Number one, ask God even now to help you make room for a new category. For some of you, the idea that God can come and he could even speak through you a language that someone else would understand, and you never said that language before, you never took it from Rosetta Stone or anything like that, you just started saying it, like that's a new category for you. For you to say to someone, you know, I think God gave me this word from you from Acts chapter 1. I don't know you. I don't know much about you, but I just want to share this with you. That's a new category for you. You're not like necessarily open to that. So first, ask God to help you make room for a new category. Secondly, declare to God that you're now open to experiencing anything you see in this Bible. Declare that to God. Just say, God, I'm open to this. You can't say to God, God, I'm open to, I'm not open to the tongues thing, but if you want to heal my back, that's cool. Like, that's, that's comfortable. No, that's not how God works. Trust him. He's a good father. The Holy Spirit wants the best for you. He is God's most precious gift to us. Thirdly, I suggest starting with a basic need of yours that is currently not being met. So maybe there's something in your life, a need, that hasn't been met. Maybe it's something that concerns you or worries you. Ask him to do something, anything in that area this week, and then just watch. Fourthly, let someone else in on that request. Tell someone, you know what, I just want to let you know I prayed about this this week. Maybe even pray for me if you would. Let someone else in on it. By the way, if that's something you've seen God provide before, let me give you an alternate for this, alternate three and four. Maybe it's when you're reading your Bible this week. First of all, read it. Ask the Holy Spirit to highlight a verse to give to someone else. To really just help a verse stand out to you. That you can then give to someone else. And then give it to them. Step four. Maybe try that this week. Then watch, learn, and rejoice as you experience the Spirit at work in your life. It's amazing. Now, are such experiences meant just to give us goosebumps and kind of get us excited and give us a little extra juice we need? They're not simply for that. They're meant to be shared. Not only shared, but also explained, which is the second act we see here from the early church. The second response to the gospel, not only experience the Spirit's work in their life, they explain it as well. Part two. Let's read verses 12 through 13. Start there. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. I'm going to stop here for a minute. Now, some are genuinely curious, right? Perplexed, amazed. What does this mean? The reality check comes in verse 13. If, guys, you don't or can't explain your divine experience, your encounter with God, somebody else will. Somebody else will explain it for you. It might be a cynical friend or a professor in your kid's college. It might be an interview with Richard Dawkins that you see on CNN. It might be something you see in pop culture about Christians or just a complaint people make at the bar about the kooky stuff Christians believe. If you don't explain what the Holy Spirit has done in your life, you cannot explain it to others. Somebody else will. And so we see in verse 13, but others mocking said, oh, they are just filled with new wine. Maybe you've never read this account that way before. Maybe you just thought, oh, people are just cynical. That's what it is. But look, if Peter and the fellas, the apostles, don't step up and explain, he'll be left with the conclusion, many of them, 
oh, they're just drunk. But thankfully, Peter does stand up, ready to explain what they've experienced. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. He addressed them. Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem. This is going to be a long passage, by the way, so enjoy it. Let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. So it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 a.m. All right, so that's an easy one to explain. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even all my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, they shall prophesy, which is what we saw here. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains, pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held down by death. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let the Holy One see corruption, or basically decompose. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died. He was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. In other words, you can go see it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, nor did did decay. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured him out. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It would be unfair for me to read this to you, exhort you, hey guys, now, you've experienced something big from God, just do what Peter did, and then drop the mic and walk off the stage, right? Just memorize what I've just read to you, and you'll be fine. I recognize this morning that's probably unrealistic, and it might take you two years to memorize this. It would take me that long, most likely. It would also be unhelpful if I encouraged you to you know, explain God's work to a friend, spouse, or child with a 500-year-old prophecy 
use fancy words about Jesus' death like foreknowledge, and then weave together two psalms. Here you go, friend. This is what God's done at work in my life. That would be unfair of me. It would be equally unfair, though, if we experienced something powerful from the Holy Spirit, if we just didn't explain it. You know, if, if we just, it would be very unwise to explain a sign or wonder and say to someone, oh, God just did that so we would sigh and wonder and just leave it at that with no explanation. That's not what we see Peter did. So we would be wise, I think, to follow Peter's pattern of explanation. Peter does two things here in explaining what happens when God works, when the Holy Spirit works. First of all, he points out, to point out a similar reference in the Bible, and he connects it to Jesus' redemptive reign. To point out something in the Bible that's similar to what you've experienced, and then connect it to Jesus' reign as king of this universe. Okay, so first of all, locate a similar reference in the Bible. This is what Peter does in referencing the prophet Joel. He says, okay, you're seeing something that the Bible has talked about and is now fulfilling. So in verse 17, when he says, in the last days, that refers firstly, Peter is saying, to now. What you are seeing and hearing, and people hearing and understanding different languages. Okay? It's a miracle. But it's been talked about in the Bible. Locate it and explain it to people as simply as possible. So let me give you examples from the instances I've already used. Someone prayed for you. You received healing. Maybe you felt something warm when someone prayed for your shoulder or for your knee or for your esophagus, or for whatever. That sounds very similar to Jesus' healing of the woman who'd been bleeding for many years. Jesus once healed a woman, you could say, and when she was healed, she felt, he felt power, energy go out from him. So if you feel a transfer of energy, like heat, well, the Bible talks about that. Something you could say. Or God makes a spectacular provision in your life. You could say to people, look, Jesus says if you seek him, if you seek his kingdom, he's going to give everything else you need as well. No problem. Right? In fact, there are a few times when he provides more. He provided fish, and he multiplied fish and loaves, and there was some left over. And Jesus does that as well. Notice I'm giving you simple ways you can explain something God did in your life to others. All right? Someone once shared with me a word that they had no idea I needed to hear, but it was perfect for the time in my life. You could say, look, this is not unusual to what the Bible explains Jesus did. Jesus once encountered a woman he just met, and he pointed out her marital and dating history to her so that she could recognize her need for a rescuer. Jesus did that. He still does that today through the Holy Spirit. This might require some homework, but we should be doing this anyway. We should be connecting what happens in our lives, something big and unusual God does to the Bible. We should be asking, do we see this happen in the Bible? For one thing, the Apostle John later says, 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits to make sure they are from God. Because not every spirit is from God. Not everything big and miraculous looking is from God. But it starts and it helps to know that it connects to something you've seen in the Bible. Secondly, connect it to Jesus' redemptive reign. Jesus reigns as king. We can connect any miracle to that reign. Eight times over 13 verses we just saw, Peter connects Pentecost to Jesus' resurrection. He's constantly pointing back to the fact that Jesus reigns. Jesus is king. He is in heaven. The basic message we heard was the same Jesus you you killed, defeated death. He reigns in heaven. He sent us as witnesses. And he sent his Holy Spirit as evidence that he rules and he reigns today. Some people will say, look, you just can't explain the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all mystery. 
But I would say along with Peter, who, who does explain, that that's a load of malarkey. You can absolutely explain it. That's what Peter's doing here. During his ministry and prior to the cross, in fact, Jesus never refused to demonstrate his power except twice. Jesus refused to demonstrate power two times. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, where Jesus twice was asked to show people a sign. A kind of on-demand power display. People said, Jesus, show us a magic trick. You will. What does Jesus say? He refused. With the same reply both times, he says, no sign will be given you except for the sign of Jonah, which is what he was referring to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When people want magic tricks, people want things that don't connect back to the redemptive reign of God, that don't show a hint of God's goodness through the cross and the resurrection and the life to come, then it may not be from God. In other words, Jesus didn't do signs and wonders just for the heck of it. They were always redemptive. They were either protecting life or restoring it. Think about his miracles, calming the angry sea, protecting life, right, the life of the disciples, uh, healing a paralytic, raising a friend from death, restoring life, restoring life, letting a woman know that he knew her marital and dating history so she might get serious about restoring life. All of it redemptive, redemptive. The Holy Spirit causes these Pentecost aftershocks and lives like ours to remind us that Jesus' conclusive rule and reign when he will fully redeem and restore our lives. When he'll bring wholeness out of the bits and pieces of the lives we live today. That's what miracles do today. They give us these glimpses. So I'm going to very simply give you that exercise here, connecting the activity of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' redemptive reign. Jesus heals you or answers a prayer for healing. You could say to someone, you know what? 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that we're going to get new bodies. And we're going to change like this, and we're going to get new bodies. And when Jesus heals people, he's giving us a reminder of his rule and reign, that he's going to do that fully one day. That's a very simple way you can connect a work of God with the word of God. Okay? Or the Spirit provides miraculously a bill that needed to be paid in your life. Right? You couldn't pay a bill, God provided. Well, you can point to a place like Revelation 21 that says that those who trust Jesus will one day be completely rid of water and light bills. Because he's going to give water without cost. And Jesus, the Son, will be the light in the new Jerusalem. So you won't even have any bills anymore. And Jesus is just giving us a little hint of that. Or what if you, I mentioned for myself, the two times I was so filled with the Spirit, I had this uncontrollable joy that resulted in laughter. I can point to this psalm about Jesus that says, He will make me full of gladness with His presence. That will be one day fully true one day. Sometimes He gives a hint of that, a taste of that today. His rule and His reign breaks in. What I've tried to set about to help us do is find a simple way to connect the works of God with the Word of God. To connect what the Holy Spirit does today with what Jesus will do completely and forever when He comes to rule and reign with finality. Friends, people in our lives and around our lives are searching, I think, for potent truth. We see in the book of Acts both fire and wood. You can't long enjoy or spread much warmth without both, can you? The Spirit's power and the solid truth of God. The fire and the wood. Let us seek the Holy Spirit to set us ablaze, but with equal fervor search the Scriptures to keep our embers burning. Let's pray together. God, we so want that in our church. We want to be a church of both fire and wood. People who would seek you, Holy Spirit, for healing, 
for reminders that you want to make us whole one day, for words of knowledge as reminders that one day we will be known even as we are fully known now. We will know for experiences of profound joy, no matter how it makes us look, to remind us that one day we will be in your presence and full of gladness and joy complete. Help us, Holy Spirit, to, to seek experiencing you, then seek to explain the experience redemptively. For those of us who are practical deists, help us be open to what you want to do in our lives. Help us be open. Help us create a new category. Help us declare to you, God, we, we're willing to experience anything we see in the Bible. Anything you would want to do in us, we declare we're open to it. For those of us who love the feel-goods of experiencing God, but don't connect it to the Word of God, help us do a little bit of mental work to connect what we experience from God to the Bible. Help us be people of the Word who keep going back and searching the Scriptures and making sure this is actually from God. And God, help me explain that to others. Give me simple ways to help connect what I've experienced with the truth of who you are so that others might be cut to the heart and cry out, what must I do to be saved? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.